Hi, this is Michael Schenker. You're listening to Iron City Rock. Hello and welcome to episode 57 of the Iron City Rocks podcast. I'm your host, John. The Iron City Rocks podcast is a podcast devoted to promoting Pittsburgh's rock, hard rock, heavy metal, and blues music scene. Welcome to episode 57. Episode 57, we had a great honor to talk to not only a legend of guitar, a legend of heavy metal and hard rock as well, the legendary Michael Schenker. Uh, it was really a, quite a thrill for me to get a chance to talk to him. We uh, got to speak long distance. He was in Germany, and I was here in Pittsburgh doing the conversation. So it's kind of a neat experience. Uh, he was really, really gracious. Uh, walked through really from the beginning of his career influences the whole way to uh, what will be coming into our fair city of Pittsburgh on July 28th to the Altar Bar with the current incarnation of the Michael Schenker Group, which features... Um, Gary Barden back on vocals, so really uh, going to be a phenomenal show, and if that was not enough, joining them on the same night, same stage, the Lynch Mob featuring legend uh, George Lynch from uh, Dawkins fame, with their original vocalist, Oni Logan, so you have the entire, um, kind of the core of the band that did the Wicked Sensation album, which was quite a hit in the uh, early 90s, I believe that was, so really a special night, Altar Bar uh, featured on the same night. Also, Sister Sin, uh, you can find more information on them at sistersin.com. Uh, pretty cool um, band from overseas, I believe they're from Sweden, so you might want to check that out. And also, Local Boys My 69 uh, will be uh, on the bill as well. So, for the price of admission, you're getting uh, opening act uh, of Pittsburgh fame, a really great uh, melodic hard rock band, a great up-and-coming metal band, and two legendary guitarists. So... Really a can't-miss show there at the Altar Bar on July 28th. So without further ado, we're going to get into the interview I did with Michael Schenker. And then after that, we're going to have the special treat to talk to the Michael Schenker Group's current bassist, uh, Elliot Rubinson. Now, the name may not uh, mean anything to you, but Elliot is the CEO of Armadillo Industries as well as being the bass player for MSG. Armadillo Industries is the company that makes uh, Luna guitars, D drums, and the uh, Dean guitars. So, uh, Elliot was responsible for resurrecting the Dean guitar brand, which had kind of gone by the wayside um, back a few decades ago. So, he's really brought it back to resurrection uh, and has become quite a popular uh, guitar with a lot of metal bands. And uh, Michael Schenker, for example, made the switch to Dean uh, probably almost five years ago. So Elliot uh, was gracious enough to kind of walk through um, how he got started literally in a dorm room to becoming one of the premier uh, American music manufacturers. So really hope to be a great uh, episode. I hope you enjoy it. Before we get into the interview, I'm going to play you a little taste of City Lights, which is taken from the In the Midst of Beauty album, which was the most recent MSG album. So this is City Lights. Spend my life go leaving this town, taking a break from your darker side. You lost your chance, girl, of bringing me down, telling your friends that everything was right. 
Michael Schenker. Michael, how are you doing? Oh, great. Thank you. Wonderful. It's uh, really great to have a chance to talk to you. I kind of wanted to uh, get everyone ready for the tour you're going to be doing in the United States with the Lynch Mob and the uh, Michael Schenker group with featuring the original vocalist, Gary Barden. So we're all pretty excited. Um, question, one of the questions I've, I've always kind of had, you grew up um, in what was West Germany. What kind of influences? Obviously, your brother Rudolph uh, was a guitar player as well, a famous guitar player for the Scorpions. But what kind of influences did you have growing up? Were the Beatles kind of big in Germany as well, or were there other influences on your career? Well, basically, uh, when I was nine and my, bro my brother was 16 and we listened to the radio and we were listening to anything that was on the radio, which obviously was uh, whatever was uh, commercial stuff that uh, was playable on radio, which was things like Beatles, The Stones, uh, Hit Parade stuff, um, uh, anything that was in the charts, we would be listening to and uh, have fun listening. Okay. Now, was was... Were you self-taught, or did did either you or Rudolph have lessons and kind of share things, or how did how did your style and his style kind of come to yeah. to be? I was I was I was self-taught, and then my brother he started working, and I was teaching him. Oh, okay. It's kind of the other way around. You're teaching your big brother. That's excellent. Right. Now you, at a very early age, joined the um, the Scorpions. I believe it was around 1972 when the Lonesome Crow album. Um, what was that experience like? I mean, we know what the Scorpions have become, but can you give us a feel for how big the Scorpions were and how much traveling you did and what the experience was like for someone so young? Well, I was 15 when we did our first album, Lonesome Crow, and uh, at that point we started to tour, basically um, small tours. It wasn't really that much until we got a tour with UFO, um, which was when I was around, uh, you know, like 17 almost, or around 17, and uh, Scorpions and UFO played together, and um, we were just playing clubs, you know, discotheques, uh, rock wasn't really that happening, um, you know, it was very hard to find audience uh, who, who enjoyed the kind of music that we were doing, but... Um, 
you know, so we did this for two years until I joined UFO, uh, um, um, you know, like a year, two years after the album. Now, were the, were the guys in the Scorpions supportive of your move to UFO? Obviously, UFO was probably a little bit bigger name at the time. Um, did, was that difficult to leave your brother in kind of the comfort of the Scorpions? Well, first of all, I wasn't uh, the original, you know, Scorpion. And uh, the way uh, Klaus and I joined the Scorpions was uh, while my brother was next door rehearsing and Klaus and I were rehearsing next door from the Scorpions in Compernicus, and they didn't have a guitarist and a singer. They didn't make it to the rehearsal, so they were listening to us, and they discovered Klaus and myself that we had developed quite a bit. So uh, they sent the bass player over to ask us to, to uh, you know, play with them, I guess, mm. and so we decided to do that, and that was basically the beginning, and, uh, um, but, you know, I was developing, my focus was guitarist, become one of the best guitarists in the world, and I enjoyed it to, I mean, it was just, uh, I was in it, you know, I mean, it was, that was my world, and still is, and I was developing so fast, I was putting all my energy into it, and I had so much fun, and uh, with the Scorpions, we were struggling, touring, trying to get any interest, you know, in, in us, uh, people were listening to disco music, and there was no management allowed, and I wanted to, you know, play, and, and play, and be somewhere where, where, where it was appreciated what you do, or where there was people with the same interests or similar, and so I told the Scorpions always that, at some point, you know, if somebody from England would ask me if to join, I would do it just for the sake of being out of Germany and being in England where, you know, rock music was happening. Right. So now they you, knew. They were aware. So you had you had kind of the vision and they were aware of your vision. Now, um, UFO, um, you were with them and, and did some phenomenal work, obviously, Rock Bottom and some of the other kind of classic UFO songs. Uh, and then you guys had kind of a parting of the way, and you went back to the Scorpions, or was there was there kind of intermediate work in between, or was it straight from UFO back to the Scorpions for the Love Drive album? I left the UFO in '78 um, as we were mixing the uh, Strangers in the Night album, okay. and that was based on Phil Mock hitting me, and uh, that was the the end for me. And my brother found out that I left the UFO. And uh, they were in the middle of making an album, and they took the opportunity to ask me if I would help out. Matthias wasn't ready to to uh, do a whole album uh, on the level that they needed, and mm -hmm. so I asked them to send me a tape, and they gave me the songs that they would wanted me to play on, and. Uh, so I, I uh, did my work and showed up at the studio and did my part, and it turned out really good. Uh, it's actually so good that, that they, uh, you know, asked me to, to join them for touring. And, uh, you know, and that's, I said yes, which I shouldn't have because my journey was a different one. And that's mm -hmm. why it got kind of got a bit complicated at that point because I said yes because I kind of didn't think. I just said yes uh, out of nowhere. Uh, mm -hmm. I, in a way, I knew that I, I already had done uh, all the, uh, you know, big big touring thing, and I had already been in the arenas, and, and I've been spending, you know, all this time with UFO, and, and I wanted to, 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 you know, do things in a different way or my own way or or just sit back and look at things and see what I even really wanted to do, and I didn't do that, and so I kind of hastily said yes to my brother, and... Mm -hmm. 
which I shouldn't have done, but that's why it got a bit complicated. Michael in, Michael out, Michael in, Michael out, and then it was it. Sure. Um, from from the experience with the Scorpions, then, you had uh, kind of uh, read some different things about potentially working with Ozzy Osbourne and Aerosmith. Um, stylistically, I'm not sure Aerosmith would have been, would have been kind of an interesting fit, Um but uh, the Aussie stories, we've heard, kind of read some less than flattering things. Do you want to talk about that at all, or would you prefer not to? What, what? Tell me what, what? The, uh, the stories about Ozzy Osbourne joining his band, was there any oh, truth okay. to that? Well, yeah, I mean, um, the, uh, the, the thing with the Aerosmith, what Peter Mensch, I was living with Peter Mensch, and uh, he told me about uh, Aerosmith, and you know, if I would like to come over to to New York to um, uh, play with them and see if 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 we had a chemistry, and so I did. But we didn't have a chemistry because Stephen Tyler he was drunk and I wasn't doing too well, and so it didn't really work out. And sure. uh, we kind of we didn't even get to rehearsal. I was sitting five days in the in the in the hotel room waiting for you know show, uh, actually for anybody to show up at the rehearsal room. And then eventually, when I did, um, you know, Stephen was totally messed up. And sure. I was already on stage practicing with the others. But I also had, and, and basically, it was just, uh, it was it was good that it didn't work out because, uh, again, it was in that crucial time in 79 when I couldn't really uh, focus yet 100% of what needed to happen to me. I wasn't ready to really understand what I needed to do. So... From 78 to, uh, uh, from 78 to, right after I left UFO until 90, I'm uh, sorry, uh, until 80, there was this one year kind of period of, uh, you know, nine months period where I kind of was hanging, uh, in a rock and, or, you know, a rock and a hard place or whatever you call it. I didn't yeah. know if I was coming or going. I, sure. I kind of, it was that kind of period where I had to, grow through in order to understand what hap- what needed to happen next. And then I decided, I actually, um, um, I think Stephen Tyler got very sick and uh, they stopped actually altogether with Aerosmith. And so Peter Mensch got, uh, got in touch with Joey Kramer and Tommy, uh, Tom Hamilton and asked them if they wanted to do my first solo album. And so I went to Boston and we were rehearsed together. And then somewhere... Uh, you know, in the next month or so, Stephen Tyler got better and they got back together or something sure. like that. And so that, were, um, that was the time when um, I started MSG. And then in 81, when Wendy Rhodes died, I got a phone call from Ozzy Osbourne in the middle of the night, very, very devastated. And he was asking me if I you know, would help out uh, or, you know, join uh, that Wendy just had, had just died. And... Um, you know, I was his first choice and uh, uh, blah, blah, blah. And uh, I kind of got very, again, um, you know, what shall I do? What shall I do? You know, it was always like this. When people offered me something, I always felt like I want to do it. And sure. the moment I, I kind of went like, wait a minute, what happened with the scorpions? Remember, it is not your, you know, the thing to do for you. You need to do your own thing. You, you, you're on a different journey. Sure. And so it, it was very difficult, but, you know, then I heard little things, things, little things like that Ozzy takes people by the hair and drags them across the stage. Those were things that helped me to make a decision. Sure. <laughs> I, said, I said to myself, oh, wait a minute, no. 
I heard about Ozzy. He tracks people by the hair, and he probably like lose all my hair. I better not. I better off not to join Ozzy. Uh, um, and uh, also, we, I was in the middle of making an album with Cozy Powell and Crane Bonnet, and so it was kind of uh, altogether very overwhelming, very difficult to make a decision, but yet. You know, something told me, you know, don't do it. And so, so, you know, it didn't happen. So you stay the course. Now, you, you've you had some uh, really phenomenal albums. You started out with Gary Bonnet, and you mentioned Graham Bonham. Uh, eventually led to um, R- Robin McCauley uh, in the, what would that have been, probably late 1980s. Uh, you had some uh, a pretty good success. Now, you um, did a little bit of fill-in work with Rat as well, if I recall. Um, did that come kind of before or after the Contraband project? And, and did that kind of stem out of a friendship with Bobby Blotzer? Or how did that your work with Rat come to be? Well, well uh, Warren Martini is a fan, and uh, we became kind of friends, and we were hanging out once in a while together, and at some point... I did, uh, I moved to America and, uh, Robin McCauley and I were just, uh, we were, um, you know, like planning to make next album, but it was still, um, we had about four months before we were able to start making the record. And in that period of time, I was asked by actually almost simultaneously by Rat to, uh, to, uh, you know, come out and, and play with them uh, after, you know, the, the uh, can't remember what happened. Robin. Anyway, Robin. so like, yeah, I don't know if he was still alive or maybe he was already dead, I can't remember, but anyway, they asked me to come out with them and, you know, there was nothing else to do and I thought, why not? It would be maybe an interesting experience. Mm-hmm. And uh, at the same time, I think, uh, Left Bank Management, which we were all part of, uh, um, Shark Island and, and Macaulay Schenker and, uh, um, uh, Rat and everybody, uh, Dixon and so on. They put together like an all-star band. They asked me if I wanted to, if I was interested to do the guitar work there uh, with with Tracy Guns. And I said, yeah, you know, it was all like in, a, in the middle of period of a, of a waiting time. And so mm-hmm. I did that, uh, but that didn't last long. Uh, I think there was a problem between um, Tracy and uh, uh, Richard Black. Okay. Now you uh, eventually found your way back to UFO for a period of time. Um, was there something that prompted you to want to go back to work with UFO, and and things kind of dissolved? I would say kind of relatively quick there again. Was it just kind of old demons cropping back up with the band? UFO UFO had asked me several times over a period of fifteen years uh, to rejoin, but uh, it never it never. Um, I was never really interested. I also started my own company in 1990. Uh, up to that point, I never actually earned any money, by the way. And the moment I started my own company, I, you know, earned some money because <laughs> I was in charge and most sure. people were taking it away from me. And so um, I found out that UFO never earned any money either. So I, you know, at that point, uh, when I realized that, um, you know, I got... Uh, I started selling my albums myself, and that's how mm. I started earning money. And so sure. I, uh, UFO approached me once again. I said, "You look, guys, you know, I think you guys deserve it as much as I do because we never got paid. You know, there is a way to earn money if you do it yourself sure. and don't get picked off by the other people." And so I kind of under the condition of selling our own albums and uh, um, and to make sure 
sure that they could not uh, uh, abuse the name UFO having other players in the band and uh, and uh, going downhill, uh, I made sure that I was owning 50% of the name and that UFO was only UFO with Michael Schenker and Phil Mark at least in the band. And okay. so that way I was making sure that at least something was original, you know, something of the core was, uh, you know, more than just one person, but at least sure. two. Yeah. And uh, so we carried on on that level, and uh, you know, and he went on and off. With that. We had a lot of organizational problems. We had a couple of different, uh, you know, managers, and, and it was all kind of really weird. And at some point, Phil wasn't happy selling the album himself, and it was just a, we didn't really all pull it one on one string. And so eventually, it just kind of fell apart. Okay. Now, um, you. Since then, uh, done uh, several. Actually, it seems like you've been more uh, prolific at putting out albums in the last couple years. Even, um, can you explain what brought Gary Barden back into the fold? Um, I think it has something to do with the universal force in general, because yeah. it's a cycle. You know, things just happen. You know, mm-hmm. whatever happens, but think if we like it or not, certain things just happen because they're meant to happen. And. Sure. Uh, but I think, you know, uh, I, I mean, I must say it's like since um, in the last year, so many things reoccur, things I haven't seen for 30 years and things I haven't, people I haven't seen for 30 years and, and, and situations that just like 30 years ago, you know, seem to be coming back out of nowhere. And mm-hmm. uh, anyway, at some point, um, uh, I think between, like Gary and I we were doing something together in '97 when we went. I went out with MSG to tour with Joe Satriani of '78, and I had uh, Gary singing with me uh, um, like five songs on stage. And uh, then a few years later, I, he asked me if I could play a solo on his album, and then I asked him uh, uh, if he could sing or uh, do a song on Tales of Rock and Roll, where I had all original singers <coughs> on, on 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 that record. And so kind of that, you know, was basically the groundwork or the, the you know, the start of uh, of the next thing was, um, you know, I just kind of decided to make an album and I was living in London and I kind of went like, hmm, who should I use as a singer? And I realized I was in England and Gary, you know, we had done some things again, you know, uh, here and there. And so I thought maybe it would be a good idea to do something with Gary. So I called him up and that's basically... From there, I went like, oh, maybe I should ask Simon if he wants to do it. And so that's kind of, you know, step by step. We all of a sudden, we, we had the uh, um, reunion of the first Michael Schenker group. Yeah, excellent. And you've done uh, some phenomenal records. Um, I, I, I Just on a, maybe a different note, you've got a relationship now with Dean Guitars and uh, as a player of Gibson for so many years. What, what kind of brought you to Dean Guitars? Well, Dean basically approached me in Chicago in 2004. They showed me the guitar. Uli Roth was on the stage with me, and uh, so there was this guitar. It was bigger, and it was more solid, and I played it. It was singing. It sounded great. It, it played excellent. You know, they had a really good good team. They, they you know, they just kind of, they were together. They, the, the way they approached me, everything seemed right. The way the guitar played, everything fell into place. I went like, this is something I want to do, you know. Nobody yeah. had approached me like that before. And so I felt like I was, you know, working together with some real people who had an interest in me. And, uh, you know, so that everything was right about it. 
Yeah, it's a beautiful looking guitar. Um, for the United yeah. States tour, you're going to be uh, obviously Gary Barden. You've got uh, kind of a special name on drums. Carmine Apice is going to be joining you, and uh, uh, Elliot uh, Rubinson of Dean Guitars is going to be. Is he playing bass on the tour? Is that? Huh? Is uh, Elliot going to be what? playing? Is Elliot going to be playing bass guitar? Yeah, he's great. We we are here already did with us. Um we played in Brazil together. We did uh part of the last US tour with him. And um yeah, we already did stuff together. Yeah, so you guys have got a really killer band. I, again, just to recap, you're going to be coming uh into the US doing uh, some dates later in uh, July and and through the summer with the Lynch Mob. So uh kind of a neat that the uh, Lynch Mob's got their original vocalist back. You've got your original vocalist back and uh Two killer guitar players on stage in one night. Uh, kind of a can't miss show. Yeah, be, yeah that'll yeah, be, be great. Yeah, it will. Uh, Michael, I want to thank you so much for taking the time out of your day to talk to us and coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much. Thanks. <laughs> Everything that's mine Finally came to my senses Some say about time A wounded pride seeks retribution And man that's hard to find End of the line Schenker Group uh, released, I believe that was in 2009. So, get a little taste from um, of exactly what you're going to be hearing when you go to see the MSG uh, July 28th. There's another song from the same album. This is called "Come Closer," and then we'll get into an interview with Elliot Rubinson, who is the CEO of Armadillo Industries, the company that owns D Drums, Luna Guitars, and the uh, famous Dean Guitars. Me. Sad songs are all too much 
pleasure. I wanted to uh, get in touch with you because you've got kind of an interesting story. We um, had featured on the same episode an interview with uh, Michael Schenker, the the great Michael Schenker, who will be coming into Pittsburgh uh, later in the month of July. Right. Uh, and caught your name as part of the band, so I thought it would be kind of a good chance to kill two birds with one stone. So sure, I let's to let it. you kind of introduce yourself and uh, tell us a little bit how you came to play bass with the great Michael Schenker. Well, it's a very interesting story, actually. I met Michael in, back in 2004 uh, after realizing he had no formal guitar endorsement with any company, and I couldn't understand why a guy of his stature would not have uh, you know, a relationship with a guitar company, uh, much less a signature guitar. So I got his number, started talking with him, and approached him about this guitar, built him his first guitar, and he immediately... I, I tell you the truth, I was kind of concerned that he wouldn't be able to make the change from the guitar he had been playing for his entire career and we sent him a guitar and the next night he played it live and never picked up his old guitar again so it was kind of uh it was a very positive you know feeling for us to know that we were able to you know meet his needs and he's a very demanding guitar player as you can tell by his playing um so fast forward now five years now it's 2004 up to 2009 michael didn't even know i played bass his touring bass player, Rev Jones, couldn't finish up a tour. And we were talking on the phone, and I said, look, I'll do it. And, you know, he reluctantly said, all right, we'll come out and audition. I auditioned, and he had me do it. And, uh, you know, really like the way I played, we continued the tour into South America. And here we are a year later uh, doing a summer tour of the U.S., starting in L.A., ending uh, my t- portion ends in Manhattan, and uh, I'm the touring bass player. So it's uh, a great feeling for me as well. What what kind of thing goes through your mind when you're standing on stage and auditioning for Michael Schenker? Is that <laughs> playing with him or playing in front of him at the time? Uh, I was playing. Well, actually, I did a little audition for him. He was out actually in the audience listening to me play. So it was a little nerve wracking having a guy you know watch you you know with crossed arms and uh, you know you're, you're hoping that uh, you know you're not going to hit every note right, but you're hoping that you know he sees you know something in your playing that's going to ask him to continue on, and he obviously did. And the more we play together, the better we play together. And, and on this tour, we have Carmine Apiece playing drums, who's an old friend of mine. So I'm really looking forward to this combination. I think it's going to be, you know, wrecking. It's going to be great. Yeah, it should be killer. And then for those not familiar, they'll be coming to the Altar Bar here in Pittsburgh on July 28th. Um, and if Michael Schenker group with Gary Barton wasn't enough and Carmine Apiece and Elliot. It uh, wasn't enough to get you in there. We've also got uh, the Lynch mob with original vocalist Tony Logan uh, and George Lynch, of course. So Definitely um, a guitar player's night, don't you think? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, there's If you've ever picked up a six-string, there's no reason not to attend this show. No lack of uh, motivation there. Right, I'm um, sure George is playing great. Michael, I, I have personally, I've never heard him play better. I just have never heard him play better. We have all new equipment for him. Marshall has just built custom-made amplifiers for him, 
and there's a few other surprises that we have in, in the way of instruments as well. Excellent. Now, to kind of fill in your background, you are the CEO of Armadillo Industries. Is that right? Ar- right, Armadillo. Right, I'm a CEO of Armadillo, and Armadillo Enterprises is the parent company of Dean Guitars, D-Drum, Acoustic Drums, and also Luna Guitars. So we have three different companies under the Armadillo umbrella. And how did you get, I mean, how did someone go from, you know, obviously a bass playing background to owning the company? Uh, how did that kind of transition? <laughs> it's a long I mean, stretch, isn't it? I and mean, and uh, it's been around a lot longer than you, so how did how did this all kind of come together? Well, well, I'll give you the short story, but basically I started music retail. I started my college dorm buying and selling musical instruments, guitars, and in particular vintage and used guitars. Got so big in the dorm, I had to move it out into a storefront and decided to call it Thoroughbred Music, and this was back in 1977. And I ran, I built this thing up from one store, one 750-square-foot store, into a chain of seven or eight stores with a huge mail-order division doing $50 million a year. Uh, in 1999, I had already purchased Dean Guitars, which was basically just, you know, it was out of business. It was almost bankrupt. I basically bought a name, a name and a logo, the famous Dean Wing logo. And I was having so much fun doing that. And the other business had gotten so big and so out of hand, I just decided to sell that to Sam Ash Music and continue on doing Dean Guitars and building it up. And we signed one artist after another. But the day came in 2004 when the late great Dimebag Darrell signed back on with us, who had been a Dean, you know, fanatic all his life, and that just totally changed the company. Yeah. Now, did, when you purchased, did you buy the rights to the ML and the Cadillac and, and the shapes, or are those? Um... Yeah, that's part of the package. There were there were a couple of old, there were two or three old shapes that came with it. The ML shape, which is you know the most famous, Flying V, which you know a few different companies build today, Cadillac. But basically, you know, the majority of our sales are in newer designs that we've done for people like Dave Mustaine uh, or, or graphic guitars from Michael Shanker, Michelangelo, Badio, Vinnie Moore. You know, people like that um, are, are really where our sales are today. You typically, uh, as a manufacturer, do you kind of seek out artists you think that might, might fit like a Dave Mustaine? How does a relationship like that get established? Um, does it come to you or does it sort of depend on who it is? Yeah, it depends on the artist. A lot of times people, you know, artists will tell their friends, look, these guys really treat me great. They're there for me. It's not a huge conglomerate like some of the other guitar companies where when you need something, it takes, you know, six months to get a decision. You know, basically they call me and I tell them on the phone, yes or no, if we can do it. And they like the way they're treated. They like the follow-up. They love the guitars. That's the biggest thing because it doesn't matter what you do for a guy. If he doesn't like playing the guitar every night, you're not going to keep him for any length of time. So someone like Dave Mustaine, we heard that his current guitar deal had expired, and we went out and reached out to him. And, you know, it's all well and good to say you want an artist, but they want to see the the proof's in the pudding, I guess you can say, and they want to see a guitar and how it plays and if it meets, you know, their criteria. And, And I can't think of an artist who we couldn't please once we set out to bring him into the family. Sure, and, and as you mentioned, obviously Dimebags was was a huge feather. I think kind of put Dean, at least from a from a third party perspective, when you know when I saw that 
a dime bag was back with you guys. It instantly kind of put you on the map. I mean, it's- well, it did, and and also the you know the sad part besides you know obviously you know his death, but he had designed the guitar and faxed it to me on a fax machine in September, two months before we signed, and he said this is going to be the greatest metal guitar in history. And uh, I got it. I remember coming over the fax machine. And I looked at it and said Razorback, and I looked at this thing instantly, and I knew what he was talking about. And we sold now close to fifteen thousand Razorbacks. It's just been unbelievable. I think it's changed, you know, the look of metal guitars. Yeah. You're probably familiar with the shape, is? Yeah, I mean, it's the guys from Trivium, T-Gun Planet, and you do you see those that guitar everywhere now? It's, exactly. It is. Design. It's kind of reminiscent. It reminded me a little bit of uh, BC Rich used to make a guitar called the Iron Bird, uh-huh. sort of with hooks in it. But you know, Dimebag. What, what a lot of people didn't know about Dimebag, he was an incredibly creative. Besides his playing, artistically, he would draw things and call me with ideas and ideas for different shapes and colors and configurations. I mean, just it just poured out of him, and uh, just a great loss on many different levels. Oh, absolutely! Yeah, I mean, it's, it's amazing the impact he had. Um, now, now you manage uh, as well as to get some kind of, I would say, kind of current artists. You went, you actually managed to attract some guys who probably were even a little bit tougher sell, like a Leslie West or, or even Michael Schenker, like you mentioned. He played a guitar for a lifetime. I mean, is that again just the individual attention that you can pay those artists? Well, I think I, I put special effort into guys like that because I grew up listening to guys like Leslie West. I used to go see Mountain play all the time. I'd see them play at the Fillmore East when I was, you know, 14 years old. And Michael Schenker, of course, was a big, big, uh, you know, um, guy that I just loved to listen to. And um, and all he's kind of like the guitarist, guitarist. Everyone I speak to, no matter what level they're at, cites Michael Schenker as an influence. So guys like Uli John Roth, Schenker, Leslie West. Uh, Vinnie Moore, uh, Michelangelo. These are people you know. I listen to. I grew up listening to, and I, I work extra hard to bring them into the stable. And I think that rather than having just guys who play rhythm or thrash or whatever, I want to have some guys who are really, you know, true artists. And I think these guys are at the top of the game. Yeah, I'm certainly wise to kind of spread yourself in different genres of music. You know, Rick Emmett, another name, uh, Tracy right. Young. Um, really impressive. Now, the Luna guitar brand, that was something new under your direction? Yes, we started that um, about five years ago, and initially, Luna Guitar started out as a girl guitar company. We thought that, you know, there's a larger segment of the market that is female that that the manufacturers were not, you know, uh, providing for in terms of, you know, guitar weights, neck dimensions, and so forth. So we started out that way with, you know, ornate designs, you know, butterflies, and different inlays and, 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 and thinner necks, and we found that more guys than girls were buying the guitars. And we decided that uh, perhaps we should open it up and make it applicable to both sexes, which is what we've done. And every year we continue, even in this economy, to continue to get growth in that line. Uh, it's predominantly an acoustic guitar line and, and a bluegrass instrument line, and it complements the Dean line very well that way because Dean guitars is two-thirds electric. Oh, okay. And then the drums, how did that come to pass? That was is that another brand that you kind of inherited? Well, D Drum it was an electronic drum company uh, that started in Sweden, and they had made only electronic drums. And although they were the best that the world had to offer, according to all the professionals, still the sales volume wasn't really there for them. They decided to sell the brand 
and I wanted to relogo acoustic drums as D drum. I decided to use D drums uh, reputation to launch a new line of acoustic drums. And on on the D drum side, it's only been five years as well. And you know, right now I'm proud to say on this big four concert that's going out in um, going on in Europe with Megadeth, Metallica, and Slayer, we have two of the four drummers are using D drum. We've got uh, Dave Lombardo of Slayer and Sean Drover of Megadeth both using our drums on this tour, which is going to be in, I believe, 450 theaters around the world. So we've been able to attract some great artists. Uh, Dimebag's brother, Vinnie Paul, is one of our artists. We just have you know a ton of people playing the drums, and we're very proud of where we've, what we've done in a short period of time. It's amazing to you know take a, take a something. It's kind of a new product there. I mean, you. You're... You've got a name there, but to start making acoustic drums from scratch. But, you know, it's a cross-branding and using, you know, a guitar player in a band recommending their drummer plays our drums. And, you know, next thing you know, you've got, uh, you know, Carmine Apice and James Kotek of the Scorpions and Will Hunt of Evanescence and uh, John Humphrey of Seether, you know, Queens, right, Anvil, Brett Michaels' band. I mean, these guys are all playing D-drum. And, again, we don't want every drummer. We just want the drummers who are really influential and great at what they do. Yeah, and you could have stopped at Carmona Peace there. I mean, really, as well, yes. There's been enough to, uh, or Vinnie Paul. I mean, there's two names that are just synonymous. Uh, legends. I mean, what else can you say about them? Well, Elliot, I want to thank you for taking the time out of your uh, busy schedule being CEO and traveling bass player. That's got to keep you quite busy and uh, weary at times. But I want to thank you for taking the time out to talk to us today, and we're looking forward to seeing you July 28th at the Altar Bar. It's going to be a great show. Hope to see you there. All right, man. Thank you for coming on the show. Thanks, John. Take care.
track also taken from the In the Midst of Beauty. That's called Ride On My Way from the MSG. Again, just to summarize, we've got MSG, the Lynch Mob, Sister Sin, and Local Boys, My 69 at the Altar Bar, July 28th. Tickets available at Ticketmaster.com. You can find more information out at DrewskiEntertainment.com. If you'd like to find more information about us, you can go to www.ironcityrocks.com. You'll find links to our Twitter, MySpace, Facebook, etc. We encourage you to follow and friend us where possible. We hope you enjoy the show and stay tuned next time for some more great info. (laughs) 